Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. At the end of May 1934, Inspector Vance was sent up to the small southern interior town of Merritt, British Columbia, where he would work on one of the worst criminal cases in the province's history. On May 23, 1934, Constable Perry Carr of the Provincial Police in Merritt received a call that there'd been a stabbing at the Canford Indian Reserve. Carr called around and collected the local doctor, and they drove out to the reserve, about 20 kilometres west of Merritt, where the Nuach First Nations ranched and farmed. When they arrived at the reserve, they found that Marianne George had been stabbed repeatedly by her husband, and that she'd lost a lot of blood. Her husband, Aeneas George, had taken off but Carr's immediate concern was to get the woman to Merritt Hospital. He told the family he'd be back later that night to arrest Aeneas. Early the next day, several cars, as well as a regular morning stage, passed direct Model B Ford on the Merritt Spencers Bridge Highway. At least two people, including a railway section worker, went to take a look. They all assumed that the car had run off the road and that the victims had been taken to hospital. Eventually, a passerby recognised Constable Gisborne's car and called police. When Carr wasn't at work the next morning, his boss, Agent Barber, was immediately concerned. When he heard about the car crash just east of the reserve, He was afraid that they'd been involved in a car accident and he took off in search for the missing officers. Agent Barber found the abandoned car. He saw that it had plunged off the highway and down a trail that led from the reserve. He clambered down the steep incline to the riverbank and saw that a tree had stopped the car from falling into the flood-swollen Nicola River. He noticed that the windshield was splintered. There was a large pool of blood on the running board and the floor mat was wet. Barber saw a brown shoe that he thought could have been Constable Gisborne's. A pair of handcuffs lay in the blood in the back seat, and Carr's riding crop lay in the front. Barber noticed a trail that led to the river's edge. He followed it and found a tattered bit of paper that he recognised was from a document that he had given Gisborne the day before. It had his own handwriting on it. Barber scrambled back up the bank, climbed into his car, and drove back to town to report the disappearance of the two officers to police headquarters in Kamloops, which was nearly 90 kilometres away. Sergeant Service and Constable Carmichael were sent from Kamloops to help with the investigation. They drove straight to the car wreck and covered the car with a tarp to protect any fingerprints, blood, and other evidence from being washed away in the rain. Carmichael stayed to guard the car while he waited for Inspector John Vance of the Vancouver Police Department 
and Sergeant Roger Peachy, the fingerprint expert with the provincial police, to arrive and undertake a forensic examination of the crime scene. Vance got there as quickly as he could drive the 270 kilometres from Vancouver to the crime scene, which was in the heart of the Nicola Valley. He started with a thorough examination of the car. He cut samples of the stained upholstery and had the mats taken from the floor of the Ford. He collected a tiny piece of fabric from the back seat of the car and a wisp of blue material that he found caught between the right running board and the fender. A dirty bit of white cloth was wedged in the hinge at the left door and he extracted another scrap of cloth from the dirt on the car's floor. While Vance finished his painstakingly slow examination, Sergeant Peachy took dozens of photos of the blood-splattered windows and the streaks of blood on the back of the car. Another officer found a bit of cloth caught in a bush a few feet above the water and handed it over to Inspector Vance. Inspector John Shiras was charged with directing the search for the missing policeman. Officers were called in from all over the district. Shiras brought a dozen of them with him and surrounded several of the buildings at what the Nuach called Ranchery. The reserve included several small shingled houses and a church surrounded by scattered pine and cottonwood trees. Other offices spread out along the riverbank. They could see where the car had left wild and zigzag tracks in the dirt before careening over the bank and into the tree. There was blood on the sagebrush and rocky ground where a tree had been cut down. An officer gathered up some glass, which Vance would later see fit into the broken window of the crashed car. Shiras found a piece of human scalp with matted hair still attached, lying in a pool of blood near the reserve gate. As police searched the reserve, they picked up a wooden club that was covered in blood and a hair and a railway tie covered with spots that also looked like blood. They also found two police-issue flashlights and a stained axe. Aeneas George was found in one of the buildings and arrested for stabbing his wife. His brother Joseph was found at Chief Billy Ernest's house. Joseph was taken to the hospital with a serious concussion. Constable Percy Carr, 38 years old, had been on good terms with the band members. He lived in Merritt with his wife and two small girls and had worked as a police officer for eight years. He refused to carry a gun, believing that it was easier to deal with people when they knew they were not being forced into submission at the point of a revolver. Carr worked with Gisborne on many cases dealing with Indigenous people in the area. But it was no secret that the officers had their enemies, especially after arrests dealing with illegal homebrew and drunkenness. Constable Gisborne, 43, was also married and had a teenage son. Before joining the Nicola Indian Agency in 1930, he was District Chief of Fire Protection in Kamloops and had served with the Forestry Branch for six years. Without naming sources, local newspapers alleged that Gisborne was known to be too severe in his dealings with the band and there had been threats against his life. On the following Saturday morning, Attorney General Gordon Sloan announced that the government was offering a $500 reward for recovering the bodies of the policemen. Later that day, police got their first break when an Indigenous man from the reserve, known only as Big Frank, 
told them that he'd seen a man's body floating in the water near an irrigation ditch on his property. The farm was about three kilometres below the reserve along the Nicola River. When police arrived, they saw that it was Frank Gisborne's body. His head had been battered almost beyond recognition and he was missing a shoe. Police officers and volunteers continued to patrol the riverbanks, searching shallows and log jams for Constable Carr. They placed nets at strategic points all the way down the river to Spencer's Bridge in the hopes of intercepting his body. Police took Richardson George, Henry Brown and Tommy Andrews into the station for questioning and the story slowly spilled out. Constable Gisborne and Carr had arrived on the reserve just after 11pm. They weren't expecting trouble. Gisborne parked his car near Chief Billy's house. He went to arrest Aeneas while Constable Carr remained in the Ford. Gisborne saw the four George brothers, Aeneas, Joseph, Richardson and Alex, coming down the path and went to meet them. Gisborne shone his flashlight in their faces and Richards and George called out, Do you want to fight? Do you want to fight? Gisborne said that he just wanted Aeneas. He asked Aeneas to come with him, but Aeneas refused. When Gisborne reached out to grab him, Aeneas hit him. As the four men went after Gisborne, the officer pulled out his gun and fired a shot at Joseph George, who was charging him. Joseph fell down, clutching his head. The shot missed, but Richardson didn't know that, and he thought his brother was dead. Gisborne, now aware that he was fighting for his life, tried to fire his gun again, but it jammed. He was thrown to the ground, and Richardson hit him five times on his head with his own police-issued flashlight. When he heard the gunshot, Constable Carr jumped from the vehicle and ran towards a fight. He was unarmed and he told the brothers, Stop that, stop that. I'm not coming here to make trouble. I only want Aeneas. Gisborne managed to break away and ran towards a gate, chased by Richardson and Aeneas. The brothers caught up with Gisborne and beat him over the head with a club until they killed him. Then they turned to Carr, who'd managed to make a run for the police car. The brothers quickly overtook him. Richardson said, we'll kill that one too for killing our brother. And they began to beat him. The brothers loaded Gisborne's body into the back seat of the police car, then stopped to pick up Constable Carr and threw him in the car as well. Alex drove along the trail that led to Merritt, but the car veered into a ditch and crashed into a tree. The brothers couldn't move it. Richardson's buckskin shirt was covered in blood. His hand was cut and there was a handcuff hanging from his right wrist that Gisborne had managed to get on. He went and got an axe and a saw from Chief Billy's house and also brought back 19-year-old Henry Brown to drive the car out of the ditch. Henry tried to back it up, but it wouldn't move. Richardson and Aeneas cut down the tree and Richardson went back to the reserve to get his horse and a rope. They finally managed to manoeuvre the car back up the incline and onto the road. At this point, Constable Carr started to moan. Richardson got out of the car, found a rock and bashed his head in. He searched the dead officer's uniform until he found the keys to unlock the handcuff. Henry Brown drove the car down the trail to the main highway and they pushed it over the bank, with the police officers still inside. 
the car struck a boulder near the edge of the road, and instead of careening down the bank into the river as the George brothers intended, it lodged against a jack pine. Richardson went down the bank to the car and, with Brown's help, dragged out the bodies and threw them into the swiftly flowing Nicola River. After that, they took everything back to Chief Billy's house. Richardson gave $10 to Henry Brown and told him not to say anything to anyone about what he had seen. 21-year-old Alex George, the youngest of the four brothers, wasn't on the reserve and couldn't be found. He stayed on the run for two days before turning himself into police. He took Inspector Shiris up to the hill just south of the reserve and showed him where they had hidden a pair of trousers, a pair of overalls, Richardson's buckskin shirt and the red shirt he had worn the night of the murder. Shiris also found a pocketbook with Gisborne's name in it, a key ring and a police baton. Everything was sent to Inspector Vance at his lab in Vancouver. Alex, Ennius and Richard George were charged with murder. Joseph's case was more complex. He was still deaf, likely from the gunshot blast that went off near his ear. Joseph couldn't read or write English and that rendered him beyond the law of the criminal court. Richardson, Ennius and Alex George were taken to Ocala Prison Farm to wait trial for murder. Joseph George was taken to St Paul's Hospital in Vancouver still unable to hear. Under Canadian law, in 1934, Indigenous people were just known as Indians and they were considered wards of the government. The George brothers were appointed a lawyer for their defence. While the Attorney-General himself was acting as a prosecutor, the defence team was formidable. It comprised veteran criminal defence lawyer Stuart Henderson and merit-born Henry Castello. Castillo, who was one of the first lawyers in BC to work on Aboriginal rights, understood the language and was proud of his rural roots. The trial was held at the end of June. Those who could get seats heard first from Big Frank, who had reported seeing a body in the water. Next, several police officers testified and a number of members from the Nuach Indian Band took the stand. When it was Inspector Vance's turn to testify, he started with the evidence that he found in the car. He showed the court how a tiny piece of blue cloth had been torn from Ennius' shirt, while two other scraps of cloth had been ripped from Richardson's shirt. There was human blood on the front and on both cuffs. A piece of the left cuff of Richardson's shirt was missing and fitted a scrap found in the police car. Aside from the jigsaw-like fit, the dye and texture were exactly the same. There were also the same number of threads to the inch. The scrap that the officer had found on the riverbank fit into the tear on Richardson's trousers. The evidence clearly put two of the George brothers in the police car. Vance's test showed that the stains on all the exhibits were human blood. That included Richardson's buckskin coat and torn trousers, the blue shirt worn by Aeneas George, Alex George's red shirt, which also had a piece of fabric missing from the right sleeve. The brown shoe found in the car and the other one that was recovered from Gibson's body were a pair, Vance said. He knew this conclusively because the construction was identical and the same polish was used on both shoes. Vance confirmed the presence of human blood on the riding crop, the car mats and upholstery, car's keyring that was found in Richardson's trouser pocket 
and a tree branch picked up from the riverbank. He also identified two rocks, one weighing seven pounds, the other slightly smaller. Both were drenched in blood, as were handcuffs found on the back seat of the police car. Vance showed how a flashlight that Gibson was holding on the night of the murders had blood on the contact point between the glass and the metal. Vance produced saturated blood-stained soil taken from the reserve and a club covered with blood on all sides. He found blood on a railway tie, an axe and a crooked stick taken from the reserve. Vance emphasised that after examining articles for bloodstains, he could confirm that it was human blood, but he couldn't say how long it had been there. Answering a racist question from the prosecutor, Vance replied, No, I am not prepared to say if I could tell the blood of an Indian from the blood of a white person. In his summation, Prosecutor Sloan said that Gibson was beaten as he lay helpless on the ground. He told the jury, Constable Gisburn was brutally and mercilessly beaten as he lay helpless on the ground. He was finished off with a half of a railway tie, weighing 25 pounds. It was a blow from this brutal instrument, I submit, that smashed his skull and drove 19 pieces of bone into his brain, which were revealed by the autopsy. The jury took two hours to return a verdict of guilty for all three brothers. Justice Dennis Murphy issued the death sentence. The fourth brother, Joseph George, was found not guilty as he'd been knocked unconscious before the murders took place. But while Vance's evidence placed the George brothers at the scene of the murder and the testimony from members of the Newatch band established their guilt, it was Vance's findings from his examination of Constable Gisborne's gun that gave the defence grounds for appeal. Vance testified that he had examined the automatic pistol carried by Gisborne and established that the single shot fired came from that gun. He said that the shot was one of a clip of six and that the gun had jammed after the first shell refused to eject from the breech. Defence lawyers Henderson and Castello appealed on the grounds that the George brothers had killed the policeman in self-defence. They proposed that Gisborne had shot at the brothers, who believed he had killed their brother. The Georges had good reason to think that once he fixed the jammed automatic, Gibson would shoot all of them. In self-defence, therefore, they seized the weapon and attacked Gisborne. The actions of the police, said Henderson, were illegal and unreasonable. Had Gisborne's gun not jammed, in all likelihood, it would have been him on trial, charged with murder. Constable Percy Carr's body wasn't recovered until after the trial, and the legal battle dragged on. Despite the appeal which resulted in a new 17-day trial and a recommendation for mercy from the jury, Richardson and Aeneas George went to the gallows on November 6, 1936. Alex George was sentenced to life in prison. Joseph lived the rest of his life at the Coldwater Indian Reserve and died at age 91 in 1987. After testifying at the trial, Inspector Vance arrived back in Vancouver to find several cases vying for his attention. There are also three more attempts on his life. The brakes on his car were cut, a bomb was put under his car, and in the most serious attempt, acid was thrown in his face to try and blind him and stop him from testifying in the trial against a former Nanaimo policeman turned safecracker. 
This is Eve Lazarus, and you've been listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear.